Aloha and welcome to Native Stories. Native Stories exists to share the voices of those connected to the land. Aloha mai kako. My name is Jace Kolokula Saplan. I am the Po'o of Navai Chamber Choir. We are very, very delighted to be here this evening uh, for a little bit of mele, a little bit of mana'o, a little bit of ava, and a little bit of ai. Um, we are here this evening to talk about this legacy of resistance and what it means when it's housed within mele and what resistance means within the legacy of our lahui. I'm going to take you all the way back to Ikavakahiko. And we're going to have a little bit of a, just a, just a little bit of a kuka kuka here. When we think about resistance, right, it is so prevalent today. It is incredibly surrounded and we're saturated with us with what's going on, not only here within our Lahui, but at a global level. There are many things to resist against and there are many structures of music that we can stand on to aid in our resistance. But what happens if I were to tell you that where we are right now and how we use our leo and how we use mele to stand on a kahua resistance actually happened ikavakahiko as well before Western contact. I'm going to take you all the way back to Mo'olelo. Kavayakane. Have a listen.
So when you think about that mele, that mo'olelo, where kane and kanaloa search all throughout Hawaii, you think and we then we realize that we are building ikawakahiko alavena, a behavior around how we resist as a lahui. When we always ask the question, ayaihea, right? The ability to step into a space of inquiry, regardless of what time frame we may be, to seek more, to ask for more, to seek what is just, to seek what is pono so that our lahui can thrive. This is a kahua of resistance. Way, way, way back when, when there was not necessarily something to resist against. The ability to be resilient, the ability to explore, the ability to step throughout your honua and to find what is right, to find what is just. It is not simply just vai, as we know. The word vai translates into so many things. It translates into well-being, translates into the worth of a community. It translates into one's very own survival. So when we think about this mo'olelo, what is so great that our kupuna taught us is that it can insert itself into so many realities. Kavayakane, the ability to question, the ability to seek, the ability to find, the ability to find, seek, and question so that one can step into a space of resilience and success. That is our kahua of resistance. That is the first chapter of our huaka'i today. If we take a look at this picture, we see the vahine, the mana vahine of our mele throughout the 1800s, and that is Queen Leokalani. Pictured here is a young Queen Leokalani during around the same time when she composed the very first mele to be written, to be distributed at a global scale, and that is Naninapua Ko'olau. Her first mele that she wrote and distributed throughout the world, not done by anyone defining, defining by he, him, his pronouns, but someone that is a young mo'i manavahine. This is Nani Napua Ko'olau. We'll sing it, and then we'll talk.
So, yes, that is the world's first introduction to seeing a Hawaiian mele outside of the sacred tradition um, being printed worldwide. Resistance? I think so. But something else to consider is, let's play a really quick game. Let's popcorn this out. In one word, how would you define kauna? What is kauna to you? One word only. Hidden. My kai, I heard you in the back. Boom. What else? Hard for one word, I know. Hidden, what else? Ike, mahalo. Thanks to you. You can define it with Hawaiian too, that's okay. Hidden, ike, what else? One more time. Layered, ooh. Mm, scrumptious, okay. Hidden, layered, ike. That actually makes sense chronologically. Can I get one more? I need an M word. Oh, ooh, mahalo. Okay, hidden, layered, ike, metaphor. Fantastic. Those are normally tied to hu'olelo, or two words, right? But what Lilia Kalani did is she expand the reality of kauna. And so it's not necessarily living, living within words. This time it's living within melody. So if we think about Naninapua Ko'olau, obviously it features the Ko'olau here on O'ahu, right? A mountain, right? A mountain range. And so she decided, well, what happens if Kauna no longer exists just within words, but within a sonic reality? What happens if I could paint or draw out the Ko'olau Mountains with melody? Sing the first uh, uh, phrase, please, Navai. Da. Cool, right? Wasn't me. It was her. I can't take any credit. But so she decides to use now not just words within the palette of resistance, but also melody. Let's go forward. All right. So, so much is going on at this point, in the later 1800s, where we have the Bayonet Constitution with her brother. So we have two mele to share, one that is written within a patriotic context. Okay? So I'm going to play one for you. This one is called Onipa'a, and then we'll talk about it. Yeah. 
So if you take a look and you think about that texture of how things are written, right? Normally, when we think about how we sing or how we um, celebrate music within a church that's sung, we're all singing the same rhythm with the same uh, same words all at the same time, right? Case in point. Let's all let's all do something together. Everybody sing Ho'onani Kamakua Mao. Can I get a G major? Two, go. Here's the thing, everyone's, we're all, our na'al calls us to those types of melodies, right? But here's the thing, it was introduced, right? The behavior of singing the same melody, or not the same melody, the same rhythm, different melodies, that comes from a hymn-like tradition, right? Luluklani was like, well, that's cool, that's awesome, but instead of translating carols, or Bible verses, or things from the Bible, I'm going to use this structure, and I'm going to write it with my own words, and I'm going to use infuse my own kauna, and I'm going to step into a space of resistance. Onipa'a, this specific song, started within these singing groups throughout, throughout Hawaii. You would have this being sung in Kwaiha'o Church, even, St. Andrews, everywhere within these Hawaiian-speaking churches. And this word, everyone say, onipa'a, resistance within this decade started within the haipule, started within the churches. Because where do people gather, where do people sing? In those spaces. And so what used to be a Western concept, what used to be a space that was specifically sacred within a Eurocentric context, now becomes a Hawaiian space. Now becomes a space where I can stand in a kahua of resistance and try to move and try to resist against the Bayonet Constitution, where I can support and serve an ally for my brother Kalakaua and rally these people within the communal context of Haipule. So it's not sacred anymore. Well, sacred within a Eurocentric context. It becomes sacred within a community-building context rooted in the effort of the Lahui. So sounds, what's really, really cool about this is if you do not speak the language, it's going to sound like, oh, wow, look at them singing. But if you know the kauna, you can speak the language, it's nestled within the mele. It's nestled within the himen. It's nestled within this hymn-like song. So she spooks you, right? You can sing this at a church. To the untrained or the unknowing ear, it might be totally passable, not political at all. But for those in the know and for those that are part of that kahua, it is a moment to step into community and to resist. Let's go one step further. Here is Himalahui Hawaii. We'll sing it and we'll talk about it. Go ahead.
the first national anthem. We normally think it's Hawaii, Pono'i. The first national anthem was written by Leo Kalani, right, as a space to proclaim the Lahui. Kalakaua had the privilege to have time to write Hawaii Pono'i. Leo Kalani knew that in order for us to stand on a kahua resistance and to um, have a voice against the bayonet constitution, we needed to have a sonic collection or a sonic message so that we can give room to our mo'i at the time to worry about resistance through the politicization of words. She said, well, that's great. I'm going to write an anthem so that we can code switch between our work as an uncolonized or a decolonized nation that can live and thrive within sound worlds of colonized nations. What was the expectation at this time to consider yourself a thriving, a robust, and a nuanced nation at the sonic level? Do you have a national anthem? So she decided to write one. She didn't have time, right? Because at this point, look behind me, the Honolulu rifles were gathering at such a massive rate that there was no sonic time to haku something that went through the proper protocols and procedures of pomp and circumstance. Instead, she said, I will write this. We need to write this now, and I need to band my troops together. So with Onipa'a, and with Himalahui Hawaii living and thriving within these spaces of the Malahai Pule, we then had a community of resistance. We had a genre of resistance. Let's move on. <laughs> Rhythmic feminism. Yes, feminism exists in Malay, in what is seen and unseen, aka Kauna. So let's do an exercise together. Let's be conductors, okay? Are you ready? So normally when we think about mele in a Hawaiian context, um, we think about mele with even numbers. We thrive on how it feels in our na'au. We naturally, as human beings, both with Native Hawaiian traditions and traditions all, around, all throughout the world uh, with this even concept. So if we just go, go like this, put your hand up, bring it down, Bounce out, come back up. Oh, take my job. Here we go. And one, and two, and one, and two. Repeat after me. Ute, ute, te. Go. Keep, keep going. Okay, good. All right, amazing. Congratulations. You now all have doctorates in conducting. So what she ends up doing and what she creates or what we've created, this Lahui has created, is a sound world where everything exists on ute, ute, te, or even numbers. Two beats, four beats. And so you get um, e ala e kalahi kahi kina. You could do that in two beats. Yeah. E mai ka ike mai luna mai e. In a slot, slow two. That's in four. Everything is even at this point. But what she does is she meets this kane. Remember, at this time, she is now in waiting, 
They're receiving guests from all throughout Europe. And the man, a man named Henry Berger comes along, who becomes the bandmaster of a very, 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 very special band called the Royal Hawaiian Band, the Band of the Mo'i. And so when you think about band music, specifically in the late 1800s, those Germans, they love to write in three. Because at this point, you get ootete, 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 umpapa, umpapa, and we call that the. Oh my God. My kai. My kai, right? So there's this, all of a sudden, we meet a reality in which our rhythmic worlds collide. Right? The days of ute, ute, te are not gone, they're expanded. So all of a sudden, Lukani sees this and she's like, mm. This is what she sounds like in my brain. Nau. Mm. Mm -hmm. And she grabs it and she makes it hers. And then for the first time ever, she pairs the waltz tradition with the Hawaiian language. Utete, utete. Fantastic. Okay, good. So, let's sing a waltz together. If you know it, sing it with us. This is Ahela Makani. This first waltz that she decides to write is so emblematic because the kauna lives within the elements. She talks about wind and the specific region that she speaks of, this wind name is very unpredictable. So what does she do? She honors that wind name by putting it in a, starts with a W, go. Wow. Okay. But that's, the, that's not the only thing, too, is that then we celebrate other things. We celebrate creation. 
We celebrate how unpredictable creation can be. We celebrate the eroticism of it all, the eroticism of Aina, with this mele called Punapaya Allah. So, what do those values have to do with Lilio Kalani, with Henry Berger, and the Waltz? Well, if you think about Lilio Kalani, she is one of the most celebrated composers, actually the most celebrated composers and prolific composers of our history in terms of published works. I like to call her the Telemann of her time. Ha, 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 I'm a music professor. Okay. <laughs> so because of these large canon, canon of works, the majority of these works happen when she meets Henry Berger because he brings this perspective that she has never seen before, and he, they are both willing to step into a space of collaboration. When you think about what she writes to and how she writes, when we think about Kana, remember the words were layered and hidden. Kana is slowly becoming revealed and unraveled and found in different places. Kana will always happen within our Hawaiian tradition, but sometimes it'll be hidden within just the melody, but the words will be blatant, right? So what she's talking about right now is Puna's walls and the misty dew and all of those nature kind action, right? Ooh, the wind, it's so strong. Right? So she's hinting at things that are, yes, romantic, but now we are entering into a space where, brah, it's not just about rowing a canoe. Okay? And so Kauna then becomes blatant while still housed through metaphor. And so when you think about her time with Henry Berger, a lot of scholars say that their union was one that was romantic. Because at this point in time, her intended husband and the mother of her husband, she suffered a lot of abuse from that relationship with her future and also when it actually happened, her uh, mother-in-law. So she's trying to find room, space, and agency to step into a space of native feminism and say, you know what? If I cannot step into this union, well, at least let me express my love, my desire, and my yearning through Mele. This is Puna Paya A'ala.
so what's what's beautiful about this is that that spoke of a union, right? That spoke of something that was fertile because we're honoring the land of Puna right now on East in East Hawaii where I was born and raised. Not Puna, but Hilo, but I love Puna. Okay. So when we move on, we then go on into our last waltz, which is Puya Kanahele, that speaks of the Evie and Eva bird, always meant to intertwine, but never truly meant to stay together forever. So it's a mele of departing. And this is the last waltz that she wrote. And after that, Waltz, she gets married. Uh, she steps into a space of marriage. She steps into a space of becoming the queen. And so, what's so beautiful about this melee and how it speaks of resistance is that she was a queen that, if you look hard enough, and if you truly listen, and if you empathize, she's very blatant about the hurt, the heartbreak and all of the trials and tribulations that she had suffered as a queen. This was one of the first encounters in which it becomes blatant. The hurt, the personal hurt is blatant. What I think is really great about her is that she's so vulnerable and she's so empathetic that we can feel this with her. The heartbreak of never truly having the, well, she has a kuleana, but never truly having the moment or the destiny to be with Henry Berger, or to be with this person. This is Puya Kanahele. Let's feel the heartbreak together.
So then we enter into a time of the late 1800s where Lilio Kalani sees all of these forces waiting to overtake her kingdom. Annexation, the year of 1893, through the lens of Lilio Kalani, happened before within her melee. You can see her efforts to resist by the political choices she made with two melee. The first was written right before, the second was doing right at the time of her imprisonment. This first melee that we'll celebrate is the Queen's Jubilee written for the Queen's Jubilee in England. There was such an incredible and unified relationship of allyship between both queens at this time. But is everyone familiar with this melee, Queen's Jubilee? Raise your hand if what's, raising, what's going through your mind right now is a Walden K. Kaoha's version. It's okay. Thank you for your honesty, right? That's what's prevalent on the radio waves. That's what takes up space right now. But not a lot of people know that there is a message to decode at the very beginning of the original composition of the Queen's Jubilee. Stephen, take it away. super weird and traditionally traditionally in composition we don't normally see her writing predominantly in a minor key right so how we can interpret that it's a cry for help because at this point when there is an arrival of a royal within the traditions of England at this point in time late 1800s there is a fanfare so you have you you hear that within the within the piano play one more time I am a trumpet, a sad trumpet, and this is a sad trombone with a trumpet. Normally it's in a major key, right? You get something that's bright and jubilant. So she's taking something from the traditions of, the, of England, putting it within a minor key, housing it in count, and she's like, girl, we need your help. Funny, but, you know, seriously, there is a blatant and a clear cry for help at the very beginning before she flips the script and steps into a space of gratitude for all that she has done. So this is a cry for allyship for the impending annexation. That is our theory. This is the Queen's Jubilee. Go ahead. Thank you. 
at the time of annexation, during her imprisonment, her output of composition is at a standstill. She writes one mele entitled Kuupua Pao Kalani that helps root and symbolize the kauna of what pua represents. At surface level, if you were to look up pua on vehevehe.org, what does pua mean? Anybody? Uncle David? F- right, flower, right? But um, the story is, is that at the time of this melee, someone from her kingdom would wrap up the newspaper of the day and take flowers from her favorite garden from Uluhai Malama and throw it upon the balcony so that she would always know what was going on in her kingdom. So in essence, there are multiple layers within this kauna, but also what's speaking is that the pua isn't a flower. It wasn't the flower in the bouquet. It speaks of the flowers of her kingdom. Kupua Paokalani helped rooted that kauna, but what it also speaks of is that if you take a look and if you listen to the introduction and how instrumentation works, go ahead. So there's this musical concept from the Eurocentric tradition called rubato. I wouldn't say that. So essentially what it is, if you put time out there in the universe, you can give yourself the agency to take it away. So not everything is always on a constant construct of ute, utete, or umpapa, umpapa. Sometimes it can be u, tete, u, te, te. So rhythm and time is no longer in a box. Kauna now can exist in elasticity. I can impart and I can exemplify my eha, my hurt to you within the absence or the lack thereof of time. Here is Kupua Pawakalani.
Mahalo. At the exit of Kupua Pawakalani, we then have an incredible wave of allyship with this incredible Manavahine, Ellen Pendergrast, who was a dear friend of the Liuokalani and wrote many mele, or the words or gave ea to many mele. Specifically with this song, Kalanana Pua, she takes the metaphor of Pua from Ku Pua Paukalani, celebrates that, but then introduces a new concept or a new symbology of resistance, which is Mele Aloha Aina, Mele Aipohaku, or the eating of rocks. At this specific point in time, Kauna becomes blatant, yes, but Ellen, Kumu Ellen, introduces this whole sound world and this whole marriage of sound and words where it is no longer blatant, it is in your face, it is aggressive, it creates all of these images wreak havoc within one's na'au that shows one's testament and shows one's love and dedication to the aina that they stand on. When we say, eat rocks, I will eat the rock, as opposed, so I oppose this so much that I will eat rocks, it is speaking to the sheer um, level that one will go to, to stand and to live and thrive in one's aina, but also shows the connection between the aina and the po'e Hawaii. We now step into a world in which the baton of the Liukalani's mele passes on to the next generation. This is Kalananapua.
So what happens next? We enter into the 1900s. And this is a time where, you're not going to see me for a little bit because I've got to go set up something real quick. We enter into a time where there's this concept of code switching. And so the way I'd like to identify or define code switching, especially with my students, is we do it naturally, especially here in Hawaii. You walk down the street, you see your friend from high school, hey, how's it, brah? How you stay? Keep walking down the street, you see your professor, oh my goodness, hello, Dr. Frankenhofen. So nice to see you. You went down the street, you see your mom, hi, ma. You down the street, and you see your, your friend, say, that's what code switching is. Different ways of communicating that still is centered within one's authenticity, right? We are expansive human beings that communicate in a lot of different ways, and that is something that's so great about our Lahui. But it's not always for one's benefit. Sometimes we have to code switch for survival. In the 1900s, what we get is a massive wave of colonization and colonized behavior, where we lose so much of who we are as Po'e Hawaii in terms of our health, in terms of our agency, in terms of our aina, in terms of so many things. But what's most prevalent in terms of what I research and what we're here today to discuss is that the aina of our sound world quickly becomes complicated. I, for the rest of this lecture now, we're going to think about what it is like if we talk about sound, we talk about mele as a physical plane that one must take care of and one must realize that there is both consecration and desecration. We're now in a time where there's desecration within the mele. So when your language is taken away during the 1900s, and when the sound worlds that you revered is taken away, you no longer have the opportunity to haku, you no longer have the opportunity to compose because the essence of kauna lives in the language. So if you don't have the language base, you do not have the opportunity to stand on a kahua of hakumele. So what happens to our mele? Well, let me read you something real quick. What happens to our mele is Hawaii quickly becomes a beacon of tourism. And that's not a surprise, right? Especially in the 1900s. Not only is our physical plane a space of tourism, but so is the language and so is the Native Hawaiian body. This is a reading from a work from Tin Pan Alley on the East Coast that helped create a space of appropriation for Hawaiian mele called Yakahula Hikidula. Yakahula Hikidu. Yakahula Hikidula, the fine Hawaiian maidens. The fine Hawaiian maidens, Yakahula Hikidula. So I think it's pretty common, or not common, but I think it's obvious that Yakahula Hikidula doesn't mean anything in the Hawaiian language. So what we immediately get is this entire canon of appropriation of the Hawaiian language. But because these mele, not even mele, because these songs come 
and echo out into the universe because of Tin Pan Alley and because of mass production of sound and mass production of music, that is the symbology of what people think Hawaiian culture and the Hawaiian language is. Something that we can disassociate and acculturate a naturalized behavior of appropriating language. But also to look at the native Hawaiian body, to look at the native Hawaiian vahine, and create a space of exoticization around it. So once you lose the language, once you lose the opportunity to stand in resistance because you don't have the tools of kauna and the space that Lulukalani created for us, that is what you have that works against us. But we still had visibility. We still had the opportunity to exist, to look Hawaiian. And so once we get into the 1940s and 50s and 60s, you have this concept with what's called Hawaii Calls. A radio station broadcast throughout America in which you see Hawaiian faces and Hawaiian bodies against the backdrop of Hawaii. And this is what it sounds like. Everyone familiar with Alfred Apaka? Okay, this is the Hawaiian wedding song. We're going to do In all honesty, how many of us, when we listen to that, it evokes feelings of nostalgia? For me, my parents would raise their hand as well. But what's interesting to note is, this is complicated for us, because we don't always think about mele like this. We don't invite feelings of pol politicization, and we don't always invite our most insidious, most inside thoughts when we think about Mele, and we think about music, especially for the 40s and 50s and 60s. We are a lahui that is constantly stepping into a space of renaissance because the kahua of resistance is always changing. So when you think about Alfred Apaka, and you think about the kuleana that he had, let's empathize for a second and think about how hard that could have been. He's singing in Hawaiian. Is that not enough? tough because there's a sense of Hawaiian visibility. There's a sense of propagating one's language. But how would we feel then knowing that while he may have sung that song, what most people associate the Hawaiian wedding song with is through film. And so the faces that are singing this ballet is not only just Hawaiian faces, it's faces that come from the 
culture of being a celebrity, about being in film. So Blue Hawaii is the thing that happened. Elvis helped propagate this song. Does the kuleana then of Alfred Apaka and being visible and being a Hawaiian, singing the Hawaiian language, do we fault him for it? That's tough to think about because his kuleana was twofold. Yes, he propagated the language. He created spaces for Hawaiians within music making and created a space for uh, celebrating one's culture within a very turbulent time. But its main motivation was also to create a space of the exoticization of Hawaii. So is it a matter of black and white or choosing between which one is more gray and which one is less gray? Let's continue to be critical. Because then we have another mele called Ku'uleavapuhi, which was also featured in a, in a, a movie called The Bird of Paradise. Be flat. song written, sung, and also celebrated Hawaiian visibility, right? That was never covered. It was always celebrated. It was always done by a Hawaiian singer. When, it, the, when you see the film, it celebrates a sense of Hawaiian identity. So is this is a step in the right direction. Let's find out. When we think about a, a kahua of resistance, we now step into a very incredible time that we call the Hawaiian Renaissance, the 1970s, 
a time where we take a look at what we have. I'm taking, talking specifically about melee and music. Take a look at what we have. We take a look at the sonic sound worlds that live within us and through us, and then we realize, ah, what do we have to do to label and to stand on the identity of Hawaiian music? If you've inherited 30 to 40 years where Hawaiian music is sonic appropriation, well, they looked to none other than the Leo Kalani. And they looked to her innovation to take a look at German wind ensemble music and write Hawaiian in a waltz, where they looked at instrumentation and they looked at opera and they saw that she was inspired by those things. And they realized that then they also were beginning to have acumen and beginning to have uh, a sense of ownership of their language. So once you have language, once you have the ability to innovate within a global musical spectrum, then you have the ingredients to create a new kahua of Hawaiian music and a new kahua of resistance. What did we resist against after 30 to 40 years of this humongous wave of development? The theme of Aloha Aina became clear. And we see the first mele with the Makaha sons of Ni'ihau and Israel Kamakabivo Ole where they use both Hawaiian and English, where resistance is no longer hidden within a hymn, where they call out the oppressor, they rise with the oppressed, and they create an incredible bilingual, multi-genre piece called Hawaii 78.
also begin to see that the faces that were prevalent throughout the 50s and 60s, the faces that created spaces of Hawaiian visibility, but also had this complicated, complicated kuleana that uh, created uh, visibility for also tourism, were, began to step into a kahua resistance as well. Hawaii Loa, where all Hawaii stands together, Yes, was celebrated and written by Uncle Lito, but this was at the this was the result of an ask by Don Ho. So Don Ho, who, as we know, has had shows all throughout Waikiki, wanted a mele to include within his show that spoke of the valleys of Aloha Aina, that educated visitors about this incredible place and could also speak as a mele or a sound world that unified locals within his show, but also the complex kuleana of a Native Hawaiian artist, of how do we perform, establish visibility, but also establish visibility for good and to unify our lahui. This is Hawaii Loa, or All Hawaii Stands Together.
And so, like Onipa'a, like Himalahui Hawaii, like Kupua Pao Kalani, we now have a canon of resistance, a repertoire of resistance. Hawaii Loa. All Hawaii stands together. Hawaii 78. This, these are mele that we have tangible memories that we associate with, that we can link the generational trauma of our kuleana, of our ancestors, of our kupuna to, right? About specific movements in time now have sound, now have a kahua of resistance. So what now? in terms of what is happening around us, in terms of the mele that surrounds us, we realize that because of the innovation of Liliuo Kalani, because of the lessons of resilience that happened to our mo'lelo, ikavakahiko, we now have the opportunity to resist through song. One song that helped us get to creating a musical space for places like Hunananiho, Kalailoa, and of course Mauna Kea was also the opportunity to ask questions rooted in one's agency. This melee in the 1980s by Brother Nolan is one that gave us the courage to step into our identity and to ask questions. This is Are You Native? Have a listen. If you want to dance a little bit, that's okay. are these creatures where they come from? Are you native? It is an entire melee based off of Socratic inquiry. Let me ask you questions. Was it funny because I said Socratic inquiry? Uh, there you go, go, go. No, no. But the thing is, you know, we then have the opportunity and we have the cultural agency to be critical because of the sacrifices, the musical sacrifices of those that came before. Alfred Apaka, everyone in the 40s and 50s and 60s, anti-Genoa Keave, their visibility was complicated, but their legacy was profound so that we can ask questions, so that we can be critical, so that when we write mele, we can write mele that's rooted in our language and can code switch between our lahui and, lahui and lahuis all over the world. Because of Brother Nolan and Are You, Noted, and Are you Native, because of Hawaii Loa, because of the opportunity to be critical and ask questions and ask chokkind questions, we then arrive at a base to create resistance. This is Kuha'aheo, written by Kumuhina, that exemplifies all of those techniques. I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to be incredibly critical and blatant with my olelo. 
I'm also going to step into a space of kauna, where when I talk about mano kalani po, when I talked about the malahini of this world, I'm not just talking about that specific world, that specific word. There's layers in there. This is kuha ahil. If you know it, please join us.
Before we end with our final melee, I just want to give a quick shout out to the Vaivai Collective for their incredible work in hosting us. <laughs> Mahalo to the Vaivai Collective. It is so crucial, in, especially now during this time within our Lahui, to have spaces that are safe, to have spaces that allow us to think, to have spaces that allow us to feel uncomfortable, that allow us to feel comfortably uncomfortable. And the Vaivai, is ju- the Vaivai Collective is just a perfect space for us. So mahalo again. Thank you so much. Yeah, Pai Pai Lima. Um, it's an exciting time here at the University of Hawaii. Um, we, uh, the ensemble be- behind me, the Navai Chamber Choir, we are an ensemble that has been in existence for around 10 years. Um, <laughs> mahalo. Um, but what's great about this ensemble now is this year we've officially launched our Hawaiian music program called Naleo Tuahine. And through this program, the Navai Chamber Choir is now an on- the first Native Hawaiian identifying ensemble in residence at the UH Manoa Music Department. So I thank the University of Hawaii for giving us a space to be trailblazers and making the U- making UH a place of Hawaiian learning. My name is Dr. Jace Kolokula-Saplan. I am the po'o here, uh, po'o with Navai Chamber Choir, and I'm an assistant professor in music at UH. Uh, we, end this, uh, we end our time and our space together with a melee that is not in Hawaiian, but celebrates the impact that we have had as a Lahui in terms of creating resistance, creating agency, and amplifying resilience. The, this theme of within our na'au and lies within the voices of our kupuna is a global theme. Aloha Aina is a global theme, especially when we see across the Paki Pika and we share our sh- we, we see our shared lineage and celebrate our shared lineage with our brothers and our sisters from New Zealand. This is Tangaroa Whakamautai by Maisie Rika, which honors the Akua Kanaloa or Tangaroa, and the importance of taking care of our waters. As Nainoa Thompson has said through the Manao of Maupiailu, the oceans do not divide us, they do not separate us. The oceans serve as a crucial connection point from island to island. This is Tangaroa Fakamautai.
Thank you for listening to us on Native Stories. Navigate through location-based stories on our Native Stories mobile app. You can find it on Apple and Android stores under Native Stories. Go check them out and leave a review and tell your family and friends. If you have a story you would like us to tell or want to sponsor a future podcast, location story, or walking tour, please email us at info at nativestories.org. Please follow us on Instagram and Facebook under username Our Native Stories.